Good evening, y'all. It's good to see you guys, and welcome to Advent season. Advent, time where all the familiar elements of Christmas start to begin, right? And for those of you who didn't grow up with that term, Advent, it simply means expectation or coming or arrival. The, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world as, as we remember God's faithfulness to his promises to us. So we, we light these candles here over the next you know, four or five weeks or so, four weeks, uh, because they are visible reminders of what Advent is leading up to. Uh, the great expectation that Christ's arrival is coming for us as believers and has already come. So Advent is not just something that happened in the past, but it's a part of our present reality here today, just like the people in the Old Testament. We're a people of Advent. We're a people in waiting. So today's scripture passage is going to help us and illuminate us not to see what just to expect, not just in this Christmas season, but, but to also have greater expectations for what God is going to do in our lives and what God will do in the world. So let's read Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38 in your Bibles, in your bulletins, in your phones, or most importantly, in your hearts. Let's read God's word. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called Mary. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together as we start this exploration of this text. Father, fill us anew again with the hope of Christ. Fill us with a humble expectation of what you will do in us as Christ's body. Remind us of the hope that we have in you and your word today. We thank you for all of this. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, you know, with the start of the, uh, the Christmas season, we are brought to the millions of expectations that surround you right now in this upcoming month. You may now expect to place your Christmas tree up legally. It is after Thanksgiving, after all. To start expecting to play Mariah Carey without penalty or fine or free, all right? You are expected to make your home into a festive decoration house filled with tinsel, stockings, red and green, everything. 
You are expected to see consumerism on the rise, with the average American family spending $900 in gifts and presents this holiday season. You are expected to see nativity scenes all around the city of Charleston, the tree set up in Marion Square, expecting to hear certain songs on the radio, and expecting great stress to come upon you as you are working out. How do we see family and friends over Zoom? How do we travel? If we travel, should we travel? I don't know. The rules change every week. Despite all the stress and expectation, all the things that you got coming up on your plate this month, there is something very comforting about knowing what to expect, isn't there? There's a stability to these Christmas traditions. There's the expectation knowing that we have something to look forward to in uncertain and unstable times. So, as we light the candle of expectation, as we turn to this very expected Advent story in Luke chapter 1, uh, we have four things that we really just want to talk about here today, and four things that hopefully will guide our time. Um, so, number one, uh, what we can expect, or what we should have expected from Mary's life, what we should expect from Mary's life. Number two, what God expects from Mary's life. Number three, how God answers the unexpected in Mary's life. And number four, Mary's unexpected response. And we're going to talk about how all of these things apply to us here in the current context we're in, but, but also talk about how this, this affects God's story. So, let's look at that first point. What should we have expected from Mary's life? In order to understand this, we need to pull back the story and see it in its larger context. So, directly before this story in our reading today, verse 26, we see that the angel Gabriel is sort of making his rounds, spreading the message of the Lord to very important people. So, first he visits the religious center of Judea, where the temple dwells, to visit Zechariah, a priest from the priesthood of Abijah, who has the lineage of the priests of Samuel, who's married to a pastor's daughter named Elizabeth, who, by the way, was a daughter in the priesthood of Aaron. Now, what is Luke setting up here? Luke is setting up here the idea that Zechariah, of all people, should have expected to get Gabriel's message. He should have understood exactly what this good news of a child meant for him. But he doesn't believe. He doesn't get it. In Luke's gospel, you see that Luke is constantly subverting your expectations. He's a master of irony, you see. So no way, for the reader reading the story, no way would Zechariah's family not understand what was happening to them. But Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel and the good news that he was to expect. In other words, the people that should have known better, the people that should have gotten it, don't understand what God is trying to say to them. And so Luke moves from this story, Gabriel, to a town called Nazareth. Gabriel, after what should have been a slam dunk of a visit to Zechariah, which turned out to be a complete flop, heads over to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. So we're moving from one of the holiest places where the temple of God is where, where Zechariah, the priest, is, now to a land which borders the pagan areas of Samaria. We're moving from the area where the highest and glory was to be felt to the area of least significance and an unholy ground in the city of Nazareth. 
Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? We are not to expect anything from it. It's a city that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Galilee wasn't a happening town. Right? There was no Starbucks or Culver there. It was not a very vibrant place. It was away from trade routes. It was surrounded by Gentiles. And it was not the religious center that Judea was. And who does this angel come and visit in the city of Nazareth? Surely not someone who was culturally unimportant. Back then, culturally, surely it wouldn't have been a young woman. But surely it would have been someone in her teenage years. Surely it was someone who's not married yet, who's had no political, social, or economic influence. Surely not Mary. You see, original readers of Luke's gospel would find this visit puzzling. Angels of the Lord usually visited prophets. They visited important leaders of nations. They visited kings. They didn't visit someone as insignificant at so as it might seem as Mary. Because what else could Mary have expected from her life up until this point in the story? You know, when we get to this section, we see that a virgin named Mary is supposed to be married to a man named Joseph. Uh, The plan of her life was pretty mundane, right? She was going to marry, live a rural, quiet life, maybe have kids, and live in obscurity for the rest of her days. No way should there be any reason for significance to be bestowed upon. So when the angel of the Lord comes to make this visit to someone who would appear to be the fringe of society, only two things are really going to happen, right? It's either going to be judgment or it's going to be blessings. It's, it's kind of like when your mom comes to school as a middle schooler, right? Like, it's either going to be a birthday party or you're going to be humiliated, right, when your mom visits. Uh, this is why when the angel appears to Mary, his first words to her are words of comfort. Words that tell her, despite what she might have expected from her life, that God is going to expect great things from Mary's life. This is the second point of your sermon. And it starts with a bang. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. O favored one. Um, We have to take a little bit of a moment of time to talk about what this means and doesn't mean, because much ink has been spilled and lives have been lost over this phrase, O favored one, in Scripture. Uh, there is nothing in Mary's background prior to the introduction of her in Luke's Gospel to think that she is somehow deserving of this favor, deserving of this honor and privilege. Um, it doesn't have to do, as some people have suggested, that Mary has achieved some sort of super spiritual status through a sinless life. Um, Indeed, if if you look at Mary's response to the angel, it would seem to suggest that she was very aware of her own unworthiness to be blessed in this way. So the favor that God is showing her, in other words, is not because Mary has merited it. It's not because Mary has done enough good to earn God's favor. It is a completely undeserved, unexpected favor that comes upon her. Uh, some of your Bibles, if you are not reading from the ESV, might say at the end of verse 28 that is, Mary, uh, Gabriel says to Mary, Blessed are you among women. But since that phrase isn't included in some of the earliest manuscripts of, of your Bible, uh, the ESV has rightly omitted that passage. But, but, but let's just say, for argument's sake, that that, that phrase is in there. Right? 
Does this change our interpretation of the passage? And I would say no. Uh, there's nothing on these verses to show that Mary is somehow a perfect and sinless woman who earns the right to carry Christ. And that is an assumption, I think, that is too far. And it, by the way, it completely changed the tone of Luke's story here. You see, the irony of the story is that Mary is the anti-Zachariah. So why would Mary somehow be a saint, even though it can't be inferred in anything that she is doing or saying in the text? You see, God wants us to leave us with one conclusion. One conclusion. When Gabriel calls Mary, oh, favorite one. It is only unexpected grace, love, and mercy that would bless Mary in this way. This is what God expects. From Mary's life. Why do we spend so much time on this scripture in, in, in talking about that interpretation? Because how you interpret that scripture changes everything in the way that you view how God views you. If you read this and thought, well, Mary earned and deserved God's favor, so that's why she gets to be used by God, then you would spend the rest of your life chasing a ghost of God that doesn't. God does not and has not given you the blessings on your life because you have somehow been deserving of it. This is the mistake of religion. Nor does his love and grace towards you ever depend upon the production of what you make of your life or what accomplishments you achieve or how much is in your bank account and how much of it you give away. God's grace towards Mary is the same grace that is given to you. It is free, and it is graciously given. You know, it's hard to come to terms with that, because so much of our lives is surrounded by the expectation that, that we need to earn love to deserve love. That we need to earn perfection to be loved by a perfect God. I mean, sometimes even in Christian circles, we can fall into this trap. That we need to earn through good works the right to be used by God in a meaningful way. That's the expectation of religion. And this is why people are exasperated by religion. The real Christian hope reminds us that we are blessed and favored by God by the sheer and radical nature that God loves you. God pursues you. God knows exactly who you are and what you have done, and he still wants to use you. So ask yourself, do you believe that God has placed you in this moment in history to use your life to spread the glory of God and his kingdom in a meaningful way? I think for a lot of us here today, we are hesitant to say yes to that question because we have a wrongful sense of the word humility. We think that no one should dare believe that God would use them because they would think that that's being arrogant. They look at themselves and think, you know, I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm worthless for God's kingdom. And maybe you, you are imagining yourself, you know, I'm just like Mary before she enters into the narrative. I am nothing of worth. So we've allowed all the doubt, the self-hate, all the ways in which Satan, the world, the flesh, lie to us. And we enter into this sense of self-hatred. I want to tell you what God's word says about you. In Psalm 8, you are made a little less than the angels. Made with wisdom and knowledge and power that has given us a blessing for God 
and demonstrated the unobjectionable truth that God loves you dearly and that your life has significance and worth and value and dignity. Why? Because Christ has laid down his life for you on the cross to rid you of your guilt and shame, self-hate, to free you from the mentality that your life cannot be used by him. He's given you his perfect righteousness, clothes you, and let you know that the Father has called you a child of God. He tells you that no matter what you have done against him, even if you've denied him three times, that if you love him, you can still serve him and feed his sheep. Because the same God that uses Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Samson, Solomon, Deborah, Ruth, Esther, and Mary uses you and I. Sheer love and perfect grace. Isn't this how we want to be loved? Isn't this how we wish for our life to be? Isn't this the hope of all of our expectations for what we would experience? You know, sometimes when we talk about the idea that God has a plan for your life, sometimes I wonder when I hear Christians say that, is that what they're really saying is that the plan of God has for them is a life without inconveniences and financial support. And in that sense, it's maybe no wonder why the health and wealth gospel has, has become so attractive in America, despite we know how dangerous and foolish that is. But you know, what if Christians saw truly what God's plan was for their lives? We're talking about the plan that God has, that his glory will be made known in your life in ways that may be different than what you expected, but ways that bring the most glory to his name. Think about the story of Joseph. Sold as a slave, imprisoned, years and years, all of those trials. And then one day, knowing that he would be the catalyst to save God's people, to save his family, to carry on the promises of God that, that the people of God would be as numerous as stars in the sky and land. Like Jim Elliot, the Ecuadorian missionary who lived as a martyr, but in his death brought salvation to entire generations of people who would have otherwise have never heard the gospel. Like our Redeemer missionaries, which we just heard about, who faithfully followed the call of the gospel and have seen the world come to know Christ in new and exciting ways. And like your life, no matter what you think of it, that God is doing a work through everything that is happening right now to bring the most glory to himself. This is the reality of God's plans for his people. They may not bring you to the most comfortable circumstances, but they will bring about his perfect purposes in your life. So what comes next? What comes next in this story? After we listen and hear God's expectations uh, for Mary, and really for our own, uh, we get to the third point of the sermon, and that's how God answers the unexpected. In Mary's life. You see, because even if Mary accepts this life-changing idea of surrendering her expectations, it doesn't mean this doesn't come with a bunch of things that arrive in our life that are completely unexpected that we just don't know how to deal with. Same thing for Mary. So the angel Gabriel is there to tell her what comes next. And I'm going to read all of these things. I want you to consider the weight of all of these things that are being told to her. Every single one of these things is a major bombshell in, in, in and of itself. And Gabriel just drops all of it on her lap. All right, listen. All right. First, first bombshell. 
She's going to give birth to a child. Now, let's just pause right there and consider how much of a bombshell that is to anyone here in this room. If someone just said to you, hey, by the way, you're going to give birth, right? Um, let alone someone who wasn't living in biblical times and that was, by the way, not pregnant. So if some stranger comes to you and tells you, hey, by the way, you're having a kid, your response is not going to be, oh, great. It's not like Mary had any idea that a pregnancy was a part of her immediate future. The marriage process took years to realize back then. She was ex- wasn't expecting anyone to tell her that she was going to be with child, especially someone not named Joseph. So that's the first option. Consider the weight of that. Second, she's giving birth to a son, and his name is already chosen for her. So, so much for the sonogram, the gender reveal party, the name reveal on Instagram. It's all coming out right here. And by the way, you have to remember what having a son meant in Mary's time. A son meant a lineage that would continue on the family name. It meant property, economy, status. Right? It meant that she would spend her life nurturing and caring for someone who would one day take over all of the inheritance. So already her mind is thought to think of her child as one that would continue the legacy of the father. But now we get to the third bombshell. Who is the father? Bombshell number three. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God would give him the throne of his father, David. So that family name, David, that that hasn't meant anything for hundreds of years as, as they were coming back from exile, this kingdom that was destroyed and they were hoping that it would be restored. Oh yeah, by the way, it's arriving and it's going to be your son that does this. Bombshell number four. The son would be over the house of Jacob forever, unifying God's family, which had been scattered in exile. And that this kingdom would bring an everlasting kingdom that there would be no end to. That he would bring peace to the world and redemption for all who would call upon his name. Imagine being told all of these things at once. Does that weight start to feel a little bit heavy on you? come with a lot of questions. Maybe this is where doubt becomes to creep in in your life and in mine in this narrative. When all the unexpected becomes overwhelming in your head and your heart, your fears and anxieties take over, you begin to doubt whether it's God really with you in this. Is God going to help get you through this? Maybe you start subverting to, to Zechariah and his doubt. But Mary's response is very unexpected. This is our last one. Mary's response is different than that of Zechariah. The Bible explicitly tells us that when Zechariah hears, he responds in doubt. But Mary, however, hears and asks not if this will happen, but how it will happen. So how does God answer the unexpected in Mary's life? Well, the angel's response is that the Son will not just be the Son of the Most High, but by the Son of God, that the Holy Spirit would come upon her with power, and that Uh, Her relative Elizabeth is also miraculously conceived, the son as well. But most importantly, here's how God answers the unexpected in Mary's life. Nothing will be impossible with God. That's the response. Nothing will be impossible with God. That is a phrase that we hear all the time as Christians. Nothing will be impossible with God. But let me ask you, given the weight of expectations that have just come about, given how God answered Mary, 
What would give Mary the confidence to expect these things to happen? I mean, her son is supposed to overcome Herod. Do you know the birth rates back then? Like, does she even survive the pregnancy? How are you going to overcome Caesar and his empire? To establish a kingdom forever and ever when so many others of power, wealth, and influence have tried and failed? How can anyone expect anything of value or glory to come through this? How can we expect God to use people like us? Perhaps a modern illustration can help us understand great expectations in the face of great uncertainty. And in particular, great expectations from a child in the face of great uncertainty. I am, of course, talking about the only child or baby right now where great hopes are being placed, and that is the baby Yoda. Now, even if you haven't seen The Mandalorian, you'll know what I'm talking about, because everywhere you go, every store, you'll see baby Yoda. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything for you that haven't been keeping up with the series, but what is so intriguing and fascinating about the phenomenon and love surrounding Baby Yoda is the fact that everyone is hooked on to what will happen next in the story surrounding this baby. Right? Everyone is theorizing about what's coming next. And, and what's interesting is about what people are not saying. Nobody is saying about Baby Yoda that this Baby Yoda won't do something amazing. No one is talking about Baby Yoda expecting a meager or ordinary life. So even though this baby hasn't done anything spectacular other than simply to be cute... We know that the destiny of this baby is destined for greatness. Why? Because we know what line this baby comes from. We understand that this baby comes from a lineage of greatness, of wisdom and power, of one who used to rule and reign in the galaxy. This baby follows in the line of the prophecy that promised to make the wrong thing right again, to perhaps to be the one to build the better kingdom. A fair and just galaxy a long, long time ago and far, far away. So, we learn to be a people of waiting, right? Not just a passive twiddling of our thumbs waiting, but waiting in hopeful expectation that we know in those tiny green arms and tiny pointy green ears lies greatness within, and we wait, and we wait, and we pay $6.99 a month on Disney Plus as we wait <laughs> for these great expectations, even though this baby hasn't done anything How can Mary expect great things to come in the face of the unexpected? Because she knows this lineage that Gabriel is telling her about. We know his family lineage. We know that Jesus comes from a line of greatness because God is great. We know God, Jesus' is wisdom, Jesus' is power. We know that despite Mary not knowing how it will happen, nothing will be impossible with God. And what does this cause for for, for God to do this for us and for Mary. Notice here what is missing from the angels, Gabriel's message to Mary. It doesn't state anything about how Mary is going to over, overcome this situation with having her child in wedlock, out of wedlock. It doesn't talk about what fortunes that Mary will receive so that she can afford to take care of this new baby. It doesn't even mention or not whether or not she will survive the pregnancy. And there are, these are legitimate fears and worries that comes from the result of this blessing. There are concerns in Mary over this new child, that the trials that her son will now face. But all of this is addressed by God's messengers. And in, 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 by saying nothing will be impossible with God, just to ask Mary, do you believe? Mary, do you have faith? So 
how does Mary respond? How would you respond? This is where we get to Mary's unexpected response. So despite all these bombshells, despite the unknown ahead of her, the difficulty she was faced, the way that people will misunderstand her, call her a harlot, call her an adulterer, the struggle she will face seeing this child become a man, to be nailed to a cross for the redemption of the world, she calls herself, at the end of our passage here today, a servant of the Lord, submitting herself completely to God's will. Think about this. Mary submits her entire life to this command to call herself a bondservant to the will of God in the face of all that was taken away from her. All of her expectations of her life, all of that, she would gladly give it away and say, Lord, it is your expectations that now will take over my life. The rest of what she wants to achieve is now to submit herself under what God wants to achieve. Her life is no longer hers. But it is the Lord's to use however he saw fit. Is this the life that anyone saw coming? No. But is it the life worth living? Absolutely, yes. Let me ask you, is this the life that you are living? See, Mary, though she was extremely young in age, understood something about life that we as adults struggle with all the time. And that is this. What is my greatest hope in this life? What is the greatest expectation that could I ever hope to have or to hold? And you here today might have answers to that question that, that would, many in the world would consider to be noble and upright. Maybe some of you would answer that question and say, I want to leave a legacy of love for my family. Or to build systems and organizations to improve the world that we live in. To make an impact on the next generation in a way that, that builds a better society and the greater good. And these are all great expectations of a life well lived, but they are a faint shadow of a glimmer of what the kingdom of God will be. See, the problem is not that our dreams and expectations are too ambitious. That's not the case. Our problem is that our ambitions and our dreams are not God-like enough to realize that the greatest hope and expectation we can have in our life is for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that will be the thing that changes our society around us and our world in front of us. Every ambition that we think will create the just society, the pain-free world, the stable structure for all of us to live in, that can only be achieved when the kingdom of God is fully realized and the Messiah comes into the story again. All of this fullness and this power and wonder and majesty and that he brings to us this new creation, restored, healed, forgiven, brought to into a place where he's prepared for us a new home. Heavenly place where we will look at him on his glory and sing and shout forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see, great faith isn't just faith in the unknown ahead of you. Great faith sometimes is knowing exactly what's in front of you and still saying, Lord, let me be. 
Lord, I will press on in the hardship and difficulty, in the ridicule, in the pain, in the suffering, in the uncertainty, because I know what the Father has expected for me is for His glory and my good. My greatest hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. Reminds us beautiful truth. What is your great expectation? What is your greatest hope? If it is waiting for God to fulfill your plan in your life, then your God is way too small. But if you are expecting God to fulfill His purposes, to see His kingdom come, and submitting yourselves to His ways, you will marvel at what God will do next, and how God will this is what it means to hope. This is faith in the evidence of things unseen and eagerly awaiting the joy that is set before us. That is what Advent is all about. So, even if we must suffer and face shame and humiliation and carry our crosses to do so, nothing will be impossible with and nothing will stop the glory of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ to fulfill his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that our lives are not what we would expect it to be. But Lord, in your perfect plan, you have given us a great hope to see the glory of your kingdom working through ordinary unworthy, unmerited people like us, like Mary. To see things and to see the world in such a profound way that only you can work. God, we are amazed by this. And Lord, we pray for your expectations to override our lives as we live our lives as servants of you. We thank you for this time in your word today. Jesus, say we pray.